Thanks to Zapier for supporting Molly Full Answers. Zapier is the easiest way to automate your work. It connects all your business software and handles work for you so you can focus on the things that matter most. Try Zapier free by going to our special link, zapier.com slash fool. Also, thanks to LinkedIn for supporting Motley Fool Answers. LinkedIn Jobs uses knowledge of both hard and soft skills to match you with the people who fit your role the best. Post a job today at linkedin.com slash fool and get $50 off your first job post. This is Motley Fool Answers. I'm Allison Southwick, and I'm joined, as always, by... What have I not called you yet? <laughs> that we I've can say on you, the air? I've called you Bobbert. I've called you Bert. Roberto. Bertie, Roberto. Rob. Blobbert. Did you do Blobbert? Blobbert mm-hmm. Brocamp. Personal so it's plans. not Blobbert Blowcramp, which is what they used to call me when I was a kid. <laughs> oh, kids are so mean. They're the worst. <laughs> uh, hey, he's a personal finance expert here at The Motley Fool. It's the truth. And uh, this week... It's mailbag. It's a mailbag and, and a really long mailbag. In fact, well, no, don't make it sound like. I mean, a really great like a mailbag. Drudge. <laughs> no, this is this is exciting with the help of Buck Hartzell. We are going to tackle a lot of questions. Thank you for having me again. Always, I think our it's pleasure. the third time. Brought me back. I think so. Thank you. Yeah. All that and more on this week's episode of Motley Fool Answers. All right, as promised, we have a lot of questions to get through, so let's just marathon through it. Buck, thank you so much for joining us. Sure. Um, I mean, this is going to be fun. Right. Yeah. Okay. Knowledge is power. First question comes from Phoebe. (laughs) I'm relatively new to purchasing individual stocks, but I've been doing a lot of research and have bought some stock in a few individual companies, as well as ETFs in sectors that I'm interested in, but are still pretty new, like cannabis and clean solar energy. Partially because I don't feel confident enough to pick the winners, and partially because these industries are so new, I'm not sure I feel confident in anyone's ability to pick the winners yet. Is there a benefit to buying multiple ETFs within the same sector? There are four cannabis ETFs out there right now, and they all seem to be pretty similar. I own two of the four currently, and I'm wondering if I would be better off consolidating or if diversification within sub-portfolios is advisable. Yeah, so uh, congratulations uh, for starting and your interest. And, you know, I like your humility there. You're like, I can't pick the winner, so I'm going to get an ETF. The quick answer to your question is I don't think there's any need to own multiple ETFs within the sector of cannabis or whatever else. So just go with one. That's where you're comfortable. Little warning, though, uh, I'm not a huge fan of sector ETFs. I think people have a tendency to trade in and out of those um, pretty quickly. That's one of the benefits of ETFs, is you can buy them and sell them like a stock. Um, but I'm not a huge fan of that. And I think within the sector ETFs for cannabis, there's a lot of new companies that are really unproven and there's a lot of hype. So there's some pretty high valuations. So I wouldn't be a big fan of owning that sector ETF myself. But if you want to own it, you want to get exposure, um, just get one. You don't need multiple ones. So you personally don't love um, cannabis as an investing thesis right now? I, I don't like the sector ETFs. And that goes for a lot of different sectors. I think. Um, People and most research has shown that people are tend to trade those sector ETFs. They trade in and out of them. They mm. don't necessarily do it at the right time. We're long-term investors here, so I think there could be a few ETFs, but unfortunately, there's too many of them. And as soon as there's something new that's popular, they'll create a ton of ETFs around it. So yeah. So then, if Patty, um, if you were to go after this, you would probably uh, research in the research the individual companies that you like. And then invest in those directly. Exactly. To diversify right. yes. the number. Okay. Yeah, 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 yeah. And if you and if you look at those companies and you're uncomfortable picking the winner, I don't feel like uh, I would hand that off to an ETF person and say, okay, now I've washed my hands. Of that I'd say, okay, then just avoid that sector if you're not comfortable picking. I think the 
there was a lot of excitement around cannabis, and so I can understand why people um, who are new to investing um, in particular are excited about it, because it does seem like it has a lot of exciting possibilities. But if you think it's already a bit hyped yes, and a bit rough, yeah. then that might be a tough thing for a new investor to start with. Yeah, but like all new things, there's 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 a, a ton of expectations, and, and for the companies that are kind of rushing to get out there and become public and get that capital really quickly, a lot of those business models aren't fully baked at this point in time, and the future is kind of uncertain. So, um, you know, the, the between the hype and then getting to where they need to be to create a great return for shareholders, there's a lot of uncertainty there. So, that's my opinion. And I'll just add that uh, if you're going to go that way, the more specialized an ETF is, the more likely you're going to pay a higher expense ratio, just so to keep in mind. Uh, and if you were to own more than one, it's, it certainly makes sense to look at what's in them because in a small industry, there probably really is going to be an awful lot of crossover. There's probably no need to own more than one. All right, next question comes from Zach. I just finished listening to the Full Fast 2019 Day 2 episode during which Take Two Interactive was discussed and Activision was on the list of the top 10 stocks owned by Fools. I'm a college senior and I've been playing Call of Duty since fifth grade, but I recently started playing Grand Theft Auto as well and I want to choose one of these stocks for a long-term investment. It's a tough choice because I enjoy games from both companies. I feel like Activision has the edge with esports, but Take Two might do better with sales and blockbuster games. Great question, Zach. I think you're more of an expert at both of these companies than I am. <laughs> um, but that's like an, the, this is the yeah. quintessential buy what you yeah. know. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you're at advantage. You, and, yeah. and what I'm hearing from you, Zach, is you're interested in them and you like parts of both of these companies. So my quick answer to you is go ahead and buy both. Yeah, Look at you. Right. You're just like, do it. Go for go it. Go for Zach. it. You don't, you don't have to be perfect. Keep your commissions under 2% of what you invest. And go ahead and own some of both of them. And I did a quick look at these, and Take Two Interactive um, is down about 10% over the last 12 months. The stock is. Um, the price to earnings ratio sits at about 46, so that's that's kind of expensive. It's going to a 13 billion market cap. Activation Blizzard um, is down about 30% this year, so a lot more than Take Two. It's got a PE of 25, which is still fairly high, and it's 42 billion market cap. So if you're looking at which one's just cheaper, it's Activision Blizzard. But I'd say like go ahead and buy both, Zach. Yeah. You'll be happy you did. You enjoy playing both, and and you'll make money off it. So uh, and that's a sector where you don't have to have just one winner. This is a growing market. It's a huge market. They can both be very successful companies. All right, next question comes from Jerry. Can you explain why it would ever be wiser, aka foolish, to buy an individual stock amongst the dividend aristocrats rather than a low-cost dividend index fund or ETF based on all of the dividend aristocrats? Well, let's first talk about the dividend aristocrats. So, those are companies on the S&P 500 that have increased their dividend payouts for 25 years consecutively, and they haven't cut their dividends. And currently, there are 57 companies on that index. Why would you buy them? Well, there are two primary reasons. First of all, there is some evidence that companies that consistently grow their dividends outperform the market and with lower risk, so that might be attractive to you. Um, but you almost might you also might be retired and you're looking for income from your stocks and you like the idea of companies that are growing their dividends. Um, so the biggest ETF that follows this strategy is the ProShares S&P 500 Dividend Aristocrats symbol NOBL, noble for aristocrats. Mm, that. Uh, but the thing is, just because a company is growing their dividends doesn't mean they're particularly high-yielding stocks. So, for example, the yield on that ETF is only 2.2%, just slightly above the S&P 500's 1.9%. So, the, the good thing about it is you can buy all those companies very easily with the ETF, pretty low expense ratio of 0.35. 
That said, it's not a high yield. So you might want to buy individual companies because there are companies within the index with higher yields. So, for example, Pepsi yielding 2.8%, Kimberly Clark and Caterpillar yielding 3.1% each, AT&T is yielding 5.4%. I don't know enough about those companies to say whether those are better investments or not, but that might be one reason why you would buy individual companies rather than buying all of them in the ETF form and getting what is just basically slightly above the S&P 500 right now. Yeah, and as Robert mentioned, about 1.9% for the S&P 500 right now for a yield, which is pretty much an all-time low. If you go back historically and look at that, you're looking at about a 4.6% average yield. Um, and so, uh, dividends have kind of fallen out of favor by a lot of large companies, and instead, uh, what they tend to do with that money is buy back stock. So, there's been a lot of money goes to stock buybacks. And the nice thing about that, from a CFO's standpoint, is if you don't have a whole lot of extra money in that quarter that year, you can just not buy back stock, right? If you if you announce that dividend, you pay it. Everybody expects it every quarter, and it becomes this thing you need to meet. So. More buybacks have been happening than dividends, so um, yeah, yields are fairly low, and of course, yields on bonds are low. So yeah, yeah two point two percent. We'll get into that later one yeah. too. It's a tough call these days. Yeah. All right, next question comes from Billy. I just started investing in individual stocks this year, and have used both Stock Advisor and Rule Breakers to put together a portfolio of forty companies. Oh, but. And that's me, not yeah. Billy. <laughs> With the new picks that come out each week, how do I decide which stocks to sell so I have the cash to buy new ideas? When a company in my current portfolio seems to be trending down after a couple quarters, it is so tempting to cut my losses and either add to my winners or invest in a new company. Yeah. Uh, first of all, congratulations, Billy. I'm going to give you the same answer I gave Zach a little while ago, which was. Um, you can own more than 40. There's no problem with that. Um, the other thing I'd say is be be careful about trying to sell stocks you haven't owned that long. You might pay short-term gains. You certainly pay commissions from most places if you're selling those stocks then. And when we go out and research companies and look at them, um, we're, the lens that we use is we're thinking three to five years when we make that recommendation. So anything can happen in the short term with the stock market, as we know. So if you're selling those continually less than a year, you haven't given the, the full thesis time to play out and appreciate it. What I'd suggest to you instead, instead of selling something, is invest at the rate you save. So when you save up enough money to buy the next one, maybe it's two months of stock advisors, you have four picks to choose from, then pick your favorite to go ahead and do it. Um, so invest at the rate you save and don't just continually cycle out and sell stuff. Let them run because the best investments that have been made in this world have gone down 50% several times across. I mean, look at Amazon and all these great Netflix companies. So, and all those. Yeah, so if you're always cutting and running um, too quick, you're not going to get the benefits of getting a five bagger, a 10 bagger, a 20 bagger. And something I've mentioned on previous shows is that often the default in a brokerage is to reinvest dividends, but instead just let them accumulate for cash with in cash if you're looking for more cash to buy investments. All right, next question comes from PT. Hi, Brothwick. I was listening to a non-foolish podcast, and the guest was explaining the need to rebalance every year. My question is, when is rebalancing small f foolish? For example, she was stating that a 60% stock, 40% bonds portfolio might need to be rebalanced since we've been experiencing a bull market in equities. But isn't the point that you have had it balanced in the first place? Were you expecting your 60% exposure stocks to do nothing? This is related to David Gardner's philosophy of adding to winners, but not exactly. But when you first balance your portfolio, aren't you accounting for the fact that it's very likely your equities will outpace bonds? So why rebalance when that happens? Yeah, a great question. And there's been a lot of research around this. I think Robert's done a lot more kind of study of it than I have. But 
I generally suggest that folks rebalance about every three years or so. Yep, things, I would agree with that. Things go in cycles here, and, and, and I know now with technology and all these um, kind of things, you can set it to rebalance literally daily or monthly or, or annually. Um, I think three years is a decent number to, to give some time for that cycle to run out. Um, yeah, so three years is good. You don't have to do it every year, every month, or every day. Yeah, and I'll just point out there are really two reasons to have a significant portion of your portfolio out of the stock market. So, to have this 60% stocks, 40% bonds. Number one is you're planning to spend some of that money in the next three to five years. You're retired or something like that, so you have to have some of that money out of the market. But also because you can't stand the volatility of an all-stock portfolio. So, according to Vanguard, when you look at 1926 to 2018, an all-stock portfolio returned 10.1%, but its worst year was a decline of 43%. When you look at a 60% stocks, 40% bonds portfolio, the return was 8.6%, but the worst year was only a drop of 26%. So, if you have that 60-40 portfolio because you just don't want the volatility of an all-stock portfolio, you should rebalance every few years because you do expect your stocks to eventually grow more to be a bigger part of it, but then it becomes riskier, and then when the drop comes, it's going to be a steeper drop, and you may not want that. So that's why you would rebalance every few years. Yep, and a cheaper way to to do that rebalance, assuming it's in a taxable account, is just with new money, like put new money towards the one that's lower allocation than it should be, instead of just selling out and and realizing and paying taxes and all that kind of stuff. If it's in a tax deferred account, then you don't have to worry about that so much. Yeah, and the flip side, the the way to rebalance if you're retired is to take money from what has done the best over the last three years or so. All right, next question comes from Daryl. I recently got married and am now trying to merge our finances. We both thought we were saving about 20 to 25% of our income. However, after some investigation, I found that my wife has been saving a much higher percentage of her income. This was due to some differences in our assumptions on how to calculate our savings rates. For example, using pre versus post tax income and including principal payments on a mortgage as savings. Am I wrong for including principal payments into our savings rate? Are there any other things we should consider in calculating our savings rate? Well, let me co- cover a couple of things there. First of all, we often get the question about whether you do it at pre-tax or post-tax. And most people, when you calculate savings rate, it's your pre-tax or your gross income. And same, by the way, with your 401k match, right? So most matches are based on a percentage of your income. Here at The Motley Fool, if you contribute 9%, we match 6%. It's 9% of your gross income. That's not debatable for the most part. Then when you consider, what do you consider savings? Well, it starts with anything that goes into any kind of account where the money isn't going to be spent anytime soon. So money that goes into your checking account that's going to be used for bills, you don't use that for your savings account. But any money that goes into any other account, brokerage account, savings account, IRA, 401k, even 529 accounts, that's considered savings and that's part of your savings, calculating your savings rate. The mortgage thing is actually kind of Debatable. I don't want to go so far as to say controversial because that sounds like it's more interesting than it really is. <laughs> right. um, but I did actually, I, most people would say no, you do not consider the principal payment on your mortgage as part of your savings. But when I did some research on it over the last couple of days, there are tons of debates about it. There's a, a debate in the Bogleheads that's got 400 and something replies of whether you consider it or not. And so on one hand, you think, well, a mortgage is going towards something you're using, it's not really an investment. On the other hand, it is an asset that you're buying that you can use down the road. You downsize or do a reverse mortgage or some kind of thing like that. So I would say either way is probably okay. 
I would think in, more in terms, probably if you're going to tilt it one way or the other, what are you thinking of your house as? Are you buying this house? You're going to live in it for the rest of your life and you have no plans of downsizing or ever using the home equity? Then I would not. If you are buying a big four-bedroom house in an expensive part of the country and you know in retirement you're going to sell that house, downsize, realize some capital gains there that you can use to live off of, then maybe it makes more sense. If you're making extra payments on the principal of your mortgage, like my wife and I are doing, then I would much more lean towards counting that as part of your savings rate. Thanks to Zapier for supporting Motley Fool Answers. If you're running your own business, think about the hours you spend moving information from one program to another, because software systems don't easily work together. Well, now they do, automatically, thanks to Zapier. Zapier is built to automate your work, and it connects all your business software and handles work for you so you can focus on the things that matter most. And they work with an insane number of programs that you already use, like Slack and Google Drive and Microsoft Office and Zoom and Salesforce. Zapier's easy-to-use tech gets these apps to talk together and get along automatically. So, for example, you can use their already set up Zaps, they call them, to have Outlook email or Gmails automatically go into Slack, or have Outlook emails turn into Trello cards, or get a Slack update when a Google Sheet is updated. There are so many options, you probably need to see it for yourself. And you can! Right now, through November, try Zapier free by going to zapier.com slash fool. That's Z-A-P-I-E-R dot com slash fool for your free 14-day trial. Zapier.com slash fool. I'm going to sit right down and write myself a letter. All right, the next question comes from Kyle. I've been a Motley Fool follower for a few years, and I really enjoy the education I have received thus far. Now I'm trying to pass that on to my children and anyone else who will listen. Just wondered if anyone had any comments about the idea of buying stock, not just to make a buck, but for the ownership and especially for the realization that you are contributing to the world when you invest in a company that performs a necessary service for others. Obviously, the day traders have missed the value in this, and I feel even some of the bigger supposedly long-term investors tend to work cyclical stocks in a similar fashion, almost like they are ripping someone off at a garage sale and selling it on eBay for 10x the profit. They've made money, but what real service have they done for the world? Just wondered if you had any further thoughts. Oh, Kyle, are you a millennial? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, thanks, Kyle. I wanted to make the world a better place. Right, why don't we? So great. And you know the, the the worst thing about companies is that I think the way they're portrayed in the media, and particularly uh, within Hollywood, is kind of always the villain, the role of a big company trying to um, you know mess up the environment or, or or put the little guy out of business. In reality, companies are super efficient, and they should be celebrated for. I mean, much of the standard of living that we have in this country is as a result of, of companies doing great things. Um, and so I think that's a great idea to pass that on. I would start by investing in companies that um, your kids or the young people you're talking about enjoy very much. So it could be video game makers, could be other other companies that they like the products and services that they sell and provide to them. So keep it relevant. Um, the other fun thing that you can do uh, is play the market cap game, and that's something I know David Gardner has talked about a lot. But um, have them guess between two companies on which is the larger company out there, and um, that's kind of a fun game. We used to play that with my kids. And uh, the other thing I would just say is like, go ahead and seed a small business venture. You can learn about uh, companies by buying a piece of them, and that's fun, particularly if they're companies that they like. The other thing you 
can do is give them a couple hundred bucks and start their own business. Could be a lemonade stand or it could be something else that they enjoy. Our kids did lemonade. They did dog walking services, a variety of stuff. Here's 200 bucks. Go start a business and learn about it. And I'll tell you, when you do shoebox accounting and you have that $200 and you got to pay for your services and products, and at the end of the day, sum up to see if you made any profit, all those accounting terms and all that stuff kind of becomes real and pretty easy to understand. So, yeah, buy business, celebrate companies that create great products and services for all of us. That's a fun thing and a great lesson to pass on. Our next question comes from Jimmy. With mortgage rates dropping down to low levels, it looks like a good time to take some equity out and invest in the stock market. But I wonder if it's too late in the game for me to dive in. I'm a 56-year-old man with a wife and two teenagers ready for college. I have six years remaining on my mortgage, approximately 90000 at 3 and 7 and five years on my home equity loan, approximately 60000 at 3.5%. I would be interested in taking 100000 in equity to invest and combining the loans into a 10-year mortgage. Is there some kind of formula to figure out if this is a good idea? If I took the money to invest, it would be invested just like most of my portfolio, in blue-chip-type companies paying a dividend. Okay, yeah. Uh, my, my short answer is probably not a great idea. And uh, if you would have came to me in 2008 or 2009, I would, probably would have been, yeah, all over that. We've we've had a kind of eleven year bull market uh, run in stocks, and the other thing I would mention is you only have a few years left on your mortgage. So as you that mortgage accrues over time, probably most of your payments are going towards uh, the pay down of principal now and not interest. So to refinance and take that money out now when you've only got what five years left probably doesn't seem like the best use of time. I like the way you're thinking, but. You've only got five years left, so it's not that bad. I'd I, I probably uh, dissuade you from doing that. Yeah, I mean, I've, we've talked for I feel like years now on the show about how the market is above average valuation, and of course, it still keeps going up. So, <laughs> so why listen to us? So why listen to us? But the bottom line is, it's it's just not as attractive a valuation as it was in two thousand eight and two thousand nine. And I know people back then who did take money out of their house and invest in the stock market, wow. and it worked out very well. But right now, things look a little. I just wouldn't feel as comfortable with that. Plus, as I've said on the show before, I'm very um, a huge fan of going into retirement without any debt. So I think that's a good idea too. All right, next question comes from Scott. There's a group for value investors that I belong to that meets every month or so. One of the investors said that if you could individually buy the companies that are in the S&P 500 but take away a stock that you know is a loser, you would automatically beat the market with your 499 remaining stocks. It can be hard picking winners, but I'm usually pretty good at recognizing losers. I keep thinking that if I can take the S&P 500 and eliminate the 100 worst stocks, then I should really do well. Do you think this would work? I chose this question because I listen to a lot of podcasts from a lot of investors, financial advisors, asset allocators, and it just seems like, particularly over the last few months, I've heard over and over about them attributing their success to avoiding big mistakes and big losses. So, when Scott sent in this question, I thought, well, maybe Scott's on to something here. So, I think there is something. I would say, first of all, he says he's pretty good at, at recognizing losers. I would just um, make sure that he's right about that. We be honest with himself. Yeah, well, yeah. sort of. And we've talked about it. In, in when Buck was on the show, we talked about keeping journals and keeping track of your picks. I think it's a good idea to, like, I think this is a lousy company, and I'm going to write it down in my journal and see if I'm right a year or two or three from now. So, if he's established that he is good at that, that's great. His specific question, it logistically sounds like a lot of work, like looking at all 500 companies and being able to pick out the worst 100 and buying the other 400, 
that's a, <laughs> that's a lot of work. Um, so I think that's probably very difficult. But the truth is, first of all, I also want to say I love that he's going to an value investing meetup club. I was thinking, like, where do you think they go? Like Denny's? <laughs> is that where they meet? <laughs> Look at their grand yeah. slams. But to a certain degree, what he's doing is already doing that, right? By picking individual stocks, he's saying, I don't want the whole stock market. I think I can pick the winners, and I think I can avoid the losers. So he's already doing that to a certain degree. Um, but anyways, before I, there's also the, the the question too of if he's really good at picking bad stocks, there's the question of does he short those? Mm. And it's not something we do often at the Motley Fool, but we have done it in some of our services, and that in itself can be profitable. Yeah, it's just hard. I think you know, like Robert said, write it down and keep track and see if you are that. I think they had. Uh, the hedge funds had their biggest negative bet on energy companies here in August, and they got they got <laughs> oh, killed. It was, they got killed. So it's just it's hard to. And predict why did, these why did they get short. killed? Because well, it was hotter than people anticipated in August, and in, in September as well, it continued. So um, usage went up, and then of course we've had some dislocations now in the market with the Iran and Saudi Arabia and that kind of stuff. Right, so which is something you just can't predict. You can't. It's it's not predictable, and the commodities are inherently volatile. So those types of things. The other thing I'd say. Is with when you're doing this, I think it's hard to buy 499 companies and do all that kind of stuff. But the other thing is, if if that losers in the bottom 100 companies, remember these indexes are market cap weighted. So even if that company does poorly, it's not going to have a nearly the impact as an Apple or one of these larger companies are going to have on the index that maybe you thought. Yeah. Right. So Microsoft is the biggest company in the index, and it makes up more than four percent of the index. The smallest company is Boston Scientific, and it makes up just 0.23 percent. So even if it plummeted and you were right to avoid that stock, it wouldn't make that much of a difference. Yeah, I feel like this is the re- reverse of what my thinking was on how these indexes work, and that generally it's a few that outperform and pull the index up with it, while there's a ton of underperformers or stocks that are just like, okay, I feel like this is the reverse of what I thought. Um, so I don't know. Someone go do a study. <laughs> generally, <laughs> you are right. Yeah. I mean, the the market. Uh, is often the the returns of the market are due to a handful. Right. Yeah. Just a handful. Though. Yeah. Right. Yeah. 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 And and during you know, like 1999 at the kind of peak of dot com bubble and that, and that kind of stuff, I think there were four companies that made up about 75 percent of the returns um, at that particular time, and those companies were really highly valued and did not do so well then and, uh, for the next decade or so. Yeah. All right, Scott. Send us the study. Send us what they're basing this on. Mm-hmm. Next question comes from Ross. I'm 24 years of age and I'm starting to invest. Wow, we got a lot of starting to invest questions here. This is awesome. I balance my investing between a Vanguard index tracker and some individual stocks. Sounds great. I'm loving the investing world despite all the recent volatility and wanted to ask how much should I keep back as cash? Should I do it as a percent of how much I've invested? For example, if I have 10,000, should I keep 30% as cash? Or should I just say I'm going to keep 3,000 as cash as long as I have that money there? And invest the rest. Oh, we typically say six to nine months living expenses in cash. You know, if you have three kids and a mortgage, you probably want to keep a little bit more than that. Um, beyond that, then I think you're good to invest it. So I don't, I don't think we don't um, guide anybody towards a certain percentage of their portfolio. It needs to be in cash. Scott, I'm assuming you're what 24 years old and you're a saver. So once you get that savings, six to nine months of expenses, living expenses, then go for it. You're good to go. Yeah. So outside of the emergency fund question, um, we sometimes talk about keeping some cash on the side so that you can act when the market makes you want to act. The dry powder or the dry tinder, we say. Yeah. 
Yeah. How do you approach that? Yeah, I think it's always a good idea to have some money on the sidelines that you can invest. Now, when you're 24 and he's saving, he's got 60 years, I wouldn't be worried about parking a ton of my portfolio in cash at basically 0% interest. If I found a good investment, I would go ahead and invest in it. But having a few bucks laying around that you can take advantage of dips when they occur, sure, that's fine. And the way I, way I would just do it is if I couldn't find anything that month to invest, just leave it in cash. Then next month you come back to it, you've got a little bit more, maybe you can find something. And um, if you can't, put it in cash. But I wouldn't build up a big cash holding. I don't think at his age to invest that's a big. If you're like you know four years from retirement, if you have a big outlay of cash that you have coming up in the next three to five years, that's different. But that doesn't sound like Ross's situation. In our model portfolios that we have in the Rural Retirement Service here at the Motley Fool, for portfolios for people who are more than ten years from retirement, it's five percent out of the stock market, and it's again, it's just that dry tinder. And the the honest truth is, you probably actually have higher long term returns if you're fully invested. But we have that small allocation just because I think people feel better about having just a little bit of cash on the side. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah, and, and I would add, since you mentioned retirement folks, like my goal when I managed some money for my father um, when he was around was to have three years living expenses in cash. And when the downturn did come in 2008 and 2009, um, he didn't have to sell any stock at all. He had three years worth of cash. And we actually bought some stock and took advantage of the the cheap prices. And then a couple, three years, stocks were back up again. And then we could sell them off a little bit. So um, a goal as you get towards retirement is three years living expenses in cash. A good one. Next question comes from Jevin. I'm 21 years old and have been investing for over two years. I inherited some stock from my grandfather when I turned 18 in an account with a broker that my grandfather had been with for many years. However, I have opened a discount brokerage that is slightly cheaper that I would like to transfer the stocks into. While I am grateful for the stocks I received, over 50% of the portfolio is invested in GE, and I'm very conflicted about what to do with the holding. I feel like I can better allocate the funds if I sell off a significant portion of that stock and purchase rule breaker recommendations that have been on my watch list. How can I maximize my returns? Oh, without breaking grandpa's heart. Yeah, yeah. What I mean, what a wonderful gift to give to somebody <laughs> mm-hmm. though. You know, I think that's a great thing, and I understand why you're a little conflicted. My my short answer is just go ahead and do it. Um, there's no reason not to, and I think your grandfather would be happy um, uh, happy to know that you're managing that portfolio and taking over and running it the way you want to now. Um, so you're going to save on commission. Um, when you inherit it, there was a stepped up cost basis in those things, and certainly if GE's in 50%, that's going down in value. So um, mm-hmm. you're not going to have a really, I wouldn't imagine, much tax liability to do that. So go ahead and transfer it and then run it the way you want to now, because somebody that may have been in their 70s or 80s is probably going to learn it own a different portfolio than you would. Do it guilt free and move on. Yeah, just to follow what you said, so the cost basis will be the value of the stock on the date of your grandfather's passing. I would get that information before you transfer it to another account so you have that with you. But GE's stock is down like 60% over the last couple of years. So uh, unless you inherited this several years ago, you're actually going to have a taxable loss that you could use on your tax return. Yeah. Next question comes from Bill. When it comes to stocks, I can readily learn about what most companies do and a little about their financial circumstances to evaluate these investments. However, I know next to nothing about bonds and how to select bond investments to ensure that I'm appropriately diversified. How do I get started in understanding bonds or bond funds and evaluating what would be the best choices for my portfolio? Boy, this is a tough one these days, man. Interest rates <laughs> Whole are episode so here, huh? it really is. They're so low. It's save so, your time. <laughs> yeah, so hard to recommend bonds. So again, the rule your retirement 
model portfolios. They have bond funds, the Vanguard Total Bond Market Fund, Vanguard Intermediate Term Bond Market Fund. Um, very low cost, very diversified, easy way to do it. Um, and they're up, you know, eight nine percent this year because interest rates have gone down. But that's going to reverse when interest rates go up, and they've shot up over the last week or so. So I had to say, for the most part, uh, when it comes to like money that you want to keep safe these days, I think CDs and and high yield savings accounts are almost as attractive as bonds. Um, I still have a, a little bit of, of bond exposure because I'm willing to take a little bit more risks for the the slightly higher long term return. Historically, bonds have outperformed cash by one to two percent or so. So I'm willing to do that. If you want to do that too, um, good places to start looking, at least just learning about bonds. First, TreasuryDirect.gov, which is run by Uncle Sam. You can buy treasuries there, commission free, but it's a lot. It has a lot of good education about treasuries. Which are very safe, um, safest investments in the world. Also free of state taxes, which is good if you live in a high tax state. Um, and they're not callable, which means if you buy a five-year treasury, you get to hold it for five years. If you buy a five-year corporate, some of those corporates can be called, which means they say three years later, actually we're going to redeem these bonds. So that's a good place. Investinginbonds.com used to be one of my favorite sites. It still has a lot of good information, but it looks like they're not updating it as much as they used to, but it's still got a lot of good basic information. If you are in a high tax bracket, especially if you live in a high tax state, municipal bonds might be better for you, and you can go to municipalbonds.com. They have a lot of great education there. Uh, but also a good site is your broker's website, because they'll have some information, but they'll also have the inventory of bonds that you can actually buy for your account. And you can actually call up one of their brokers and say, can you help me choose the right bond for my situation if you want to do that. If you don't want to do individual individual bonds and you want to do something beyond the index funds, the the bond funds that I like come from Dodge & Cox, TCW, PIMCO, and Metropolitan West. And I name them because they're sort of companies known for, for particularly good bond funds, so I would start there. All right, next question comes from Robbie. I'm a recent Stock Advisor member, and the question I have is, how do I limit my losses? In the past, I've used stop losses at 5 to 8% level, but I've been whipsawed a lot. I like to believe that as long as the company has not changed fundamentally, I should hold on to it. However, I don't want to hold a position with a 20% loss in the hope that it will come back. I'm not sure if the fool sends out sell recommendations. If so, what is the logic used? Is it a stop rule, or is it a mix of factors such as fundamental deterioration of the company? Should I still have a stop loss of 10 to 15 percent, maybe, on my stocks? Uh, not a big fan of stop loss orders. Uh, I don't think they do what you're hoping they will do. You're trying to protect the downside. If you want um, to really do that, you can, you know, hold some uh, cash on the side, and that'll help buoy you and give you money to invest when those things drop. We've talked about this many times on the show, and even earlier today, that the best performing stocks that go on to be 20, 30, 50, or 100 times higher than when you bought them have multiple drops of 50 percent plus. So. What is going to happen is during a time of panic or bad time, you're going to be selling out of that stock. We've ha- we've seen it happen in the same day that it pops up and goes back up again. Um, I-, I just don't want to be a, you know auto sold out of position by a robot. And most of my uh, emphasis, and I think all of our analysts here at the Motley Fool, are not on the movements or the up and down of the price of the stocks. We, these, are, these are long-term investments. We anticipate we're going to hold these at least five years or so. So the up and down doesn't really bother us that much. All of our time is spent on thinking about the business and how is the business done, and so um, 
I would say avoid the stop loss if you want to uh, tame the volatility, hold some more in cash, and have some money available for when that uh, time comes where that great stock goes down a little bit and you can add to it. That's as, as one of our uh, more senior analysts, Buck, you've been at The Fool for more than 20 years. How often do you say you would s- you sell a stock within five years or even at five years? Very rarely. Yeah, you own stocks yeah. for yeah, a I, long, long. We time. collect stocks. It's kind of like a museum. So you add to them, and you add to them when you think they're uh, more attractive. So sometimes that happens when they've doubled or tripled, and you still might like it even more. Sometimes it happens when it goes down fifty percent, and you get an opportunity. Those tend to be broad-based market sell-offs, like two thousand eight, two thousand nine, or when everything goes down at once. And those are wonderful, um, but we just like to add and add to that collection. So, timing the sells and buys and using stop loss is not something we do very much. To, to also help a little bit with that volatility, and I don't know your allocation stuff, is limit your allocation on buy-in to 10% in any given position. So, only 10% of your portfolio in one stock at a max on buy-in, and then no more than 30% in an individual sector. So, you don't want to have 90% of your stocks in one sector. So, that'll help a little bit with the volatility as well. Thanks to LinkedIn for supporting Motley Fool Answers. Hiring isn't as simple as putting an ad in the paper or posting to a job board. When you're juggling hiring with everything it takes to grow your business, it's important that you reach the right candidates at the right time, and that's where LinkedIn comes in. Over 600 million members visit LinkedIn to make connections, learn and grow as professionals, and discover new job opportunities. That's how they make sure your job post gets in front of people with the right hard skills and soft skills to meet your role requirements. Things like collaboration, work ethic, adaptability. LinkedIn does the legwork to match you to the most qualified candidates so you can focus on hiring the person who will transform your business. We've had great results with LinkedIn here at Motley Fool. Considering the pace at which we are hiring, it's Mm -hmm. crazy. We don't have a lot of time to waste trying to find the right people, and that's where LinkedIn has been a huge help. To get $50 off your first job post, go to linkedin.com slash fool. Again, that's linkedin.com slash fool to get $50 off your first job post. Terms and conditions apply. What goes up must come down. Next question comes from Megan. Last year, when NVIDIA was doing really well, I became irrationally exuberant and bought a lot of it at a high price of $277, and then it plummeted by 50%, and I'm now looking at a $7,000 loss. This makes me sad and think bad thoughts about NVIDIA. However, I believe that NVIDIA will eventually recover and go on to do great business. So, should I buy more stock at today's much lower price so I can benefit from the ride back up? Or should I stop throwing money in the NVIDIA hole and patiently wait for it to come back up and then sell a bunch of shares at a break-even price? Can you share your wisdom about these situations? Well, I, I like how you're thinking about this. And the way to frame it up is really to separate the business performance from the stock performance, right? And it hurts. We all feel pain. You know, we've all bought stock yeah. <laughs> literally the next day when they go down, right? <laughs> Stuff happens and, and, that, and that's difficult for all of us. But don't freak out and don't panic. The step back, the kind of 10,000 foot view is how is this business actually doing? And, you know, like, Quick look at Nvidia. I don't own it, but you know it's about 40 times earnings now for Nvidia, which is about twice what the S and P 500 is. So a good way to kind of frame that up and say, hey, if you had a choice of investing in the S and P 500 or Nvidia, do you think Nvidia is going to do about twice as good? Do you think they'll grow about twice as fast as the average S and P earnings and that kind of stuff? And that's, by the way, in single digits for the S&P 500. So, if you like the business and you like their prospects going forward, it's no shame in adding to it. If sometimes you're a little uncertain and going, oh, well, I'd written down, here's why I bought it, and I got a little carried away, and I thought X, Y, and Z would happen, and they've missed on all of those, 
then I might say, hey, take a, take a step back here. You haven't been proven right on your other stuff. But if it's just a stock price movement, it's fine adding to it in 50%. I like that you're separating those. Yeah, don't freak out. Rick writes, I'm 54 years old. After a recent inheritance, my wife and I have roughly $1.5 million invested with no debts. When would you recommend retiring? I do not have health insurance outside of my current employer. Certainly a huge factor in decision-making. Oh, yeah, that health insurance question. That's <laughs> yeah, a tough one. Yeah. So, if you were thinking, can I retire now, it really depends on how much you spend each year. So, if your annual expenses are around $50,000, that might be the case because it says you don't have any debts, then it's, it's actually possible because $50,000 on a $1.5 million portfolio is about a 3.5% withdrawal rate. Which studies indicate it's actually probably reasonable for a 35 to 40 year retirement. And of course, more and more days you've, you read lots of articles about the FIRE community, financial independence, retire early. And you read about these people in their 30s and 40s who are retiring on less than $1.5 million. I'm not sure all of them are actually making the right decisions, but if you read their blogs and read their books, they have some pretty good tips on how to retire early. The most well known is Mr. Money Mustache. Um, we had the guys from uh, ChooseFI.com on our show, and they have a new book that's coming out on October 1st, and they're going to be on the, on the show in November. And then there's Billy and Acacia Caterly, RetireEarlyLifestyle.com. They retired at age 38 back in 1991, and they're still going strong, living on less than $30,000 a year. So it's possible. You do have to solve the healthcare one. If you're in good health, maybe you can get by with a low-cost, high-deductible healthcare plan. If you and your wife are not in such great health, it's probably going to cost more, and it may not be workable, at least until 65, when you're eligible for Medicare. The other thing to know is, uh, if you retire early, your Social Security benefit won't be as high, because it's based on your 35 highest year's earnings. It's not going to like cut it in half or anything, but it's something to be aware of. And my final point is, and I say this to everyone who's, a, who's thinking of retiring, go see a qualified fee-only financial planner to get that professional second opinion, make sure that you have all your bases covered before you actually retire. Yep, and I, and I think you know, bros talk about this a lot. When you first retire, you want to spend a lot of money. You would go play golf, do all this kind of stuff. Just realize, like you know, you're in work eight hours a day. So when you're not, what are you going to do with that time? If you're spending money and doing stuff that costs, you might need more than that fifty thousand dollars that you expected. On the other hand, if you're finally going to get to work at and get paid for something that you really love, but maybe not make as much as you used to. And you're really going to enjoy it. Well, that's awesome. That's like the real retirement. You're going to do what you love to do. Yeah, yep. yeah, yeah. I find if I'm not earning money, I'm spending money. <laughs> right. right. Yes. Yeah. All right. Last question comes from Dylan. I'm looking for a bit of advice on diversification within a taxable brokerage account. I'm 27 years old and have a very high risk tolerance, but have recently seen three stocks, Okta, the Trade Desk, and PayPal, grow to make up a total of 49% of my 13 stock portfolio. I tend to fall in David Gardner's let your winners run high camp and have been hesitant to trim any of these positions up to this point. But would you recommend selling a few shares and reallocating the money elsewhere? I add roughly 5% of the portfolio's value in cash each month and have been trying to dilute the numbers by adding new stocks, but those three just keep on climbing up, up, up. Nice problem to have, but am I overexposed? Darn, those stocks oh. keep moving up. You can't rebalance them. so good them. at investing. Oh. Yeah, right. Congratulations, Dylan. Um, that's awesome. Well, first of all, I wouldn't add any more to those stocks. I mean, we've talked about this before, no more than 30% in a given sector, and you have 49%. In stocks that I would say are probably all in the same technology kind of sector with Okta and PayPal and Trade Desk there. 
So you're a little over allocated. I think you're right there. You can rebalance with new money. Um, I, you know, this is a personal decision, so it's it's a tough one to make a definitive call on. The way I would think about it, though, is, you know, how would you handle a forty percent decline in in any one or all three of these and uh, stocks, and how would that impact the way you live? If it doesn't impact the way you live and you're a long way from retirement and everything else, you'd say I'd add to these because I really like these businesses and I know them very well. And I'd say let it ride, but don't put new money in there. Put it in other things like you've been doing. So I think you're thinking about the right thing. The other one is just a sleep sleep at night test. You know, like it sounds like with this question, you're starting to feel a little uncomfortable with that allocation. And so if that's the case, go ahead and trim a little bit. There's nobody that's going to like get mad at you for doing that. You know, like um, you don't have to sell out all. Of them. And the last thing I'll add in from a sell tip. Sometimes people need to raise money to buy something or whatever else, and they have to pick which stock to sell. And that's all because we love all of our stocks, right? We've collected these over years, and it's difficult to make that decision. My suggestion, though, is to sell a little bit of everything. That way, you keep your portfolio intact. You don't sell out of a whole position, and then it goes up eightfold afterwards. You just kind of sell a little bit of everything till you get to your number, and you have roughly the same portfolio allocation there. But yeah, if it's bothering you, go ahead and sell some. Don't feel guilty about it. It's profit. Don't knock it, Dylan. <laughs> <laughs> All right, that covers it for the questions. Buck, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Thanks Man, for you doing guys that. Blew it's through always so fun. Many questions. Way to go. Yeah. Good job. All right, let's head to the other mailbag, shall let's, we? Let's do it. Okay. Um, so we got some. Um, we've gotten some feedback from you guys on some previous episodes. So I'll just blow through some of it. All right. There we go. Versus from uh, JCP. He writes his friends call him JCP, so you know I'm going to call him that too. Dear Answers Crew, I finally listened to all the episodes you have so far. Oh my gosh. Woof. <laughs> that's, all, that's over two Almost five episodes. years. I've learned so much that I wanted to teach you about video games. In games, there are usually skills or powers you acquire as you level up. These skills can either be active or passive. An active would be like pressing a button to use a power like a fireball. A passive skill is an effect that stays on in the back room permanently, such as getting 10% more experience and money from defeating a monster. The latter is my favorite, since you are investing a skill to get more returns in the future. It's thanks to you guys that I've acquired the active skill of managing my portfolio. Now I will keep upgrading my passive income skill to get this snowball rolling. Thank you. Keep up the good work. Uh, Carrie writes, um, uh, after uh, listening to our episode about entertainment and the cost of cable and how that's still so frustrating, and getting internet um, in particular, so, he no longer has internet service to his house. He got he has Wi-Fi at work, the gym, and the library, where I download the Netflix shows I want to watch and then can watch them anywhere, including my home. Love, love, love that download feature. I don't know if I could survive without internet to my house. Yeah, that'd be a tough one. Way to go, Carrie. Good for you, though. <laughs> Having the discipline to not have to pay that internet bill? So good. Uh, Kirk writes... Last week, you answered a question regarding rolling one's 401k into either an IRA a new, or a new employer's 401k. One thing you didn't mention is that 55-year-old retirement clause that lets you pull out equal substantial payments from your current employer's 401k. I find this hugely motivating and would cause me to roll into a new employer's 401k rather than an IRA if I moved jobs at this time, because I'm 47. Uh, so I, th- I think he's talking about... Well, uh, there's a couple of things. Some plans will allow you to do an in-service distribution when you reach a certain age. Usually, it's I guess it's 55, maybe 59 and a half, where you can actually take somebody out while you're still working. But your plan has to determine that. And the other thing he might be talking about is, generally, when you take money 
out of a 401k before you're 59 and a half, you have to pay the 10% penalty. But some 401ks, you actually, if you retire from, you can take money from just your last 401k at 55 and not have to pay a penalty. So uh, certainly something to consider, but the rules vary from plan to plan. Um, also, Nathan writes that uh, Pictet is pronounced Pictet. I have no idea what that is, but I believe him that I mispronounced it. Yeah. Sorry, Nathan. Well, I don't know how I was supposed to figure that out outside of just being a smarter human being. I'll try. <laughs> I'll try to be better. Uh, all right. So it looks like I just missed Eddie on his 50 state tour in Yellowstone by like a few weeks. He says our shows are getting too depressing. He may oh, be really? right. Well, well, I mean, we keep tackling kind of okay. sad topics. Let's do more happy things. Um, Gene and Patty sent us some postcards from Hawaii. Gosh, Yellowstone's they... beautiful. I know, isn't it great? Well, here's also some postcards from Hawaii to oh, tell you another Hawaii beautiful is thing. More beautiful. Um, they enjoyed listening to Last Scene. Oh. I don't remember recommending that podcast on air, but um, yeah, you did. I'm glad they enjoyed it. Yeah, I remember. Uh, my new podcast recommendation is Something True. Not all the episodes are safe for work, but they are all fascinating and funny. Do you guys listen to Something True? No. Oh, you guys I, would I started, love it. I started to based on your recommendation, but I haven't listened yet. It's so good. You guys would love it. All right. Uh, okay. Colin says hi from Talkeetna, Alaska, uh, but he's from South Carolina. Alaska is also beautiful. <clears throat> also beautiful. Hey, look, David sent a card from Iceland. Um, he was going to. He couldn't send us a card from Moldova, but here's one from Iceland. We really could have used that Moldova one to cross it off our list. <laughs> uh, PT says hello from New Mexico. PT, I think we answered your question earlier on the show as well. I think we did. Uh, Thad sent a card from Windsor. Did I already talk about this one? Oh, it's even shaped like Windsor. Isn't that great? There you go. Yeah, Windsor's beautiful too. Uh, Daniel and Rachel sent a card from. Paris, where they survived the hottest day in history of 108.7 degrees. Can you imagine? Uh, Rich sends a card from Bethlehem, Pennsylvania. Stocks! Bonds! Uh, Josh sent a card from South Carolina. He says he's been listening since the first episode. Yowza. Jim sent a card from Mount Fuji. He climbed it with his son, John. How cool is that? Ben sent a card from Barcelona. Very nice. Look, there's the Gaudi. And we also have Jim from Arlington sent a card from New Hampshire. And this card doesn't have a name on it, but it's from North Dakota. Reindeer. Yum. I don't know. Right? I'm, I'm not seeing a name. That's a nod to Ross. Yes. So thanks, you guys, as always, for the postcards. We do love them. We do love them. <laughs> they're so amazing. Apparently they're all beautiful. Where's all the postcards from, like, Camden or Newark? Well, the one from Bethlehem is a factory, so... All right, everyone from Camden and New York, Newark, <laughs> you can send your hate mail to Rick. Uh, not me. Yeah. I've actually never been to Camden or Newark. Um, so, yeah, thank you guys for sending postcards, as always. Um, if you are still on vacation and sending, want to send us a postcard, our address is 2000 Duke Street, Alexandria, Virginia, 22314. Did you see the comment, by the way, about what's what's at 200 Duke Street? Yeah. it's Oh, yeah, yeah. Apparently, someone kept sending postcards to 200 Duke Street, and yeah, they weren't happy, right? Yeah. So, Don wrote us to say, that home is currently for sale, and it's worth more than $2 million. <laughs> Sorry, oh, people well. at 200 Duke Street. 
But they're probably just jealous that we get more mail than they do. Probably. Fun places from a 50-state tour. Um, All right. Well, that's the show. It's edited adverbingly by Rick Engdahl. For Robert Brokamp, I'm Allison Southwick. Stay foolish, everybody. Stay foolish, everybody.